You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 34. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, If you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that's fine. There should be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, 17 through 34. And when you've gotten there, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word today. Again, Mark 10, verses 17 through 34, Providence. Hear the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, uh, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning to you. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, I want to say thank you so much for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here. We hope you enjoy yourself. Uh, like Scott said, we're working through the book of Mark. And so uh, we're going to talk about a familiar passage, or at least a familiar story, uh, the rich young ruler and his interactions with Jesus this morning. Now, we got a lot of work to do and a little bit of time, so... Uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to pray for us first and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll do that for us. Father, we thank you for the privilege to come and to sing to you and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you that we can be confident that our worship is acceptable to you, not on the basis of our merits, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, just perfect and spotless and without blemish. We thank you that you hear our prayers this morning because of Christ, and we can be certain that you hear our cries and our needs. And so we do ask now that you would open the eyes of our hearts to hear the word and to receive the word and to see the word as it truly stands, that you would minister to us now 
and help to guard us and protect us and also, Lord, perhaps to lay down the idols that come with the trappings of material wealth and possessions. Help us to choose the good portion, unlike the rich young ruler here, to choose you and to treasure you. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So here in the book of Mark, there's one uh, omitted characteristic about this young man uh, that the book of Luke actually does record. And I just want to mention it, and then we'll dive right into the text. But here in the book of Mark, your subtitle says, uh, The Rich Young Man. And Luke includes another characteristic. He calls him the rich young ruler. So he is wealthy, this, this man. He is young. And according to Luke, he has some role in authority, whether in civic life or religious life, we don't know, but we bare minimum know that the man has authority. And all these are going to be key elements that come together to make up this passage. So let's start with the first setting of scripture, 17 through, verses 17 through 22, and let's read. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the first thing that we see is that this young man, um, unlike the Pharisees, is not coming to Jesus in order to trap him in his words. He's not coming to Jesus with ulterior motives on uh, hoping that somehow he might make himself look good, but instead he falls down before the feet of Jesus and he asks a genuine question. Uh, One of the reasons that we know this is Jesus' response to him, which is unlike his responses to the Pharisees. Jesus takes the man at his word and has an interaction with him answering his question on the basis of the conversation's merits. Unlike the Pharisees who come in with kind of these side angle conversations and they want to trap Jesus and so he just retraps them, that's not what happens here. We know that the Bible actually records here in Mark that Jesus loves this young man. So let's continue. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now two things are going on here. Number one is Jesus is going to have a conversation about the Mosaic law here with this man. Uh, But there's also a tongue-in-cheek moment here in the passage. It goes something like this. Jesus says, you've come up to me and you've kneeled down at my feet and you've called me master and you've admitted that I have the way to eternal life. And then he says, but why do you call me good? He picked up on specifically the goodness or the idea of divine goodness. He says, God alone is good. No one's good. No man is good. Now, for us as Christians, we have uh, the, whole, the entirety of the Old and New Testament. We have this breadth of theology. We have Romans. Many of us, from the moment we were children, have the Roman road in our head running around. You know, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. If you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you can be saved from the wages of sin, which is death, right? And so we have an understanding that you know, man is not good. But here, we have to see that this uh, rich young ruler, this, this Jewish man, uh, he's, a, he's an adherent to the law. He's a good man he's, uh, by every moral standard of the Jewish day. And Jesus lays out this very Christian, unique understanding and saying, hey, uh, no one's good except God alone. Now, the reason that this is tongue-in-cheek is because he's not saying to the man, hey, you shouldn't call me good. He's not saying I'm not good. Jesus is saying, hey, you know that I'm a... A master, you know that I'm a teacher of the way of eternal life. Do you know that only God is good and you called me good? And by deductive reasoning, he's saying, do you know who I am? Are you possible? Is it possible that you know that you're right, but you're right for the different reasons? I'm not just a good teacher, but I'm God in the flesh. Okay. But then he follows up and says, you know the commandments. Watch this. 
Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now this is the second tablet of the commandments. If the first four of the Ten Commandments on the one tablet of stone is about the vertical relationship with God, relationship with Yahweh, the last six of the commandments are interpersonal with neighbor. They have to do with God's commandments about how we treat one another. And Jesus quotes all of them in a little bit of an obscure order. You know, he quotes it rather than five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He quotes it six, seven, eight, nine, ten, five. Okay, but Jesus quotes the entirety of that tablet with one unique difference, and that is that rather than saying that thou shalt not covet, he says, don't defraud anyone, which I think that we should put a pen in. We're not going to be able to touch much on, but perhaps because money is going to be the issue with this rich young man. So he uses fraud, defrauding people as his interpretation of that. Now, here's the interesting part, and I think we all jump on this. He says, the young man looks at him and says, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now, we jump on this guy's case because we're like, this guy's hypocritical. This guy's religious. Look at him. He thinks he's so self-righteous. And truly, yes, he does have a high view of himself. But let's not rush to conclusions. Perhaps this man truly is morally upright and has sought to actually pursue obedience to the commands since his youth. That seems to be what he's saying. And Jesus doesn't argue with him on the merits of that. So I want you to think about this in terms of, let's say, John chapter number four, Jesus speaks with the woman at the well, and he addresses some of the things that maybe she's unwilling to share, unwilling to admit. Jesus doesn't have a problem with pointing out if you're being a phony with him about your righteousness, and yet he doesn't do that here. No, Jesus is going to point at something else. He's going to point at another issue that's not in the law tablets, at least not in the letter, but in the spirit. So Jesus says to him this, watch this. Verse 21, Jesus looking at him, really important if you underline your Bible, and loved him. Jesus does this out of love. He said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And then verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus reveals here that although the young man is upright morally, and perhaps has pursued to be obedient to the law, that it's entirely plausible to still be spiritually enslaved and to be pursuing moral virtue. And we're going to get into why. But he points out that this young man is enslaved to mammon. Mammon is the New Testament word that's used. It's never used in the Old Testament, but it's used in the New Testament. It's Jesus uses it in the book of Matthew when he says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. It's meant great wealth possessions that end up owning you. It's falling into the trap of believing that the accumulation of material goods will somehow enrich your life in a metaphysical way. So this is where we move from physical things being of utility to physical things enriching us in a transcendent spiritual way. And we start to believe more in the physical and we begin to believe more in what can be offered to us through beauty or acclaim or praise or particularly money and power and what it offers us, how it makes us feel, what it says about our being, not what it actually accomplishes in the physical. We've all could probably, if we spent time here, which I don't have the time, you probably can jive with this. This would be like when Michael Jordan decided he wanted to sell Jordans, he, the focus of the advertisements were not so much on how high you would jump, 
if you wore the Jordans, not so much uh, the comfort of the Jordans or how long lasting of the material, but instead it was just one line, be like Mike. And what was the message being communicated? Not that this is a good product, although I like Jordans are a good product, but, but that you'll be like Mike if you wear them. See, that's a different offer. That's an offer of transcendence. This is an offer of metaphysical. You'll, you, this can change your being, your state of being. You'll be like Mike. Everybody wants to be like Mike, but you can be like Mike if you buy the Jordans and all the other iterations that come after that. That's not the only ad, by the way. I'm not just, you know, banging on Michael Jordan. There's a lot of advertisement like that. You can be this. I want you to think of it like this. Brands, where does the word brand come from? Well, if you're you're in agriculture, you know that cattle ranchers brand their cattle to distinguish which cattle belong to them. And companies now brand their companies and their merchandise, and then we wear those brands as a means of telling people something about ourselves, where we belong, the group we belong to. It's like a sports team. You're a Cowboys fan. You know, God bless you, Corey. You belong to this group, okay? That's a brand. I'm a Nike guy. I'm an Under Armour guy. Girls, I don't know exactly. I could go, maybe I need to ask my wife, but I'm sure there's many things. These are the things that we distinguish ourselves by. But unwittingly, we don't think about the spiritual connotation, which is it signifies ownership. Who's owning who, though? Who owns who? One of the famous, you guys remember this, I think it was in the 90s, one of the uh, famous book by a guy named Chuck Palahniuk, he wrote a book called Fight Club, it became a famous movie, kind of a cult classic movie, it didn't really do all that well in the box office, but it ended up doing really well later. And the reason was because it was a cultural critique, and it was a cultural critique on materialism in many ways, masculinity also, and you know, there's this famous scene though where, you know, Tyler Durden, which is played by Brad Pitt, and uh, his basically alter ego, but the Edward Norton are talking in a bus. And he points, it's, it's funny, right? Because he points at the Calvin Klein at it and he says, is that what a real man is? And it's basically this, you know, young guy in whitey tighties, you know? And the whole thing is like how shameful it is that this is like just right by your face and you're watching real masculinity, you know? Um, but there's a line that he says, the things that you own end up owning you. And that resonated with a lot of people because they started thinking, oh man, like we've become a place where we, we need to accumulate these things to have a sense of belonging, to have a sense of identity so that now those things are so essential to our lives, they own us. We're enslaved to them. If I don't have these things, then I'm not this kind of person. And if I'm not this kind of person, then who am I? We start having identity crisis over it. And it's not merely, I want to say this, the Bible doesn't say that that's only true of wealthy people who can get brands or logos or identity. no. It's also true of that person who decides that they are going to identify themselves through their poverty. We can be identified as that which we reject. I'm not that kind of guy. Well, you're still doing the same thing in the inverse. You see, only Christ offers us something different. And interestingly, Chuck Palahniuk, he's only partially correct here. The Bible doesn't tell us that the things that we own can end up owning us. No, objects can't own you, but the false idols and the false gods are animating those objects, behind those objects, they most certainly do want to own you. The entirety of the Old Testament is filled with graven images 
with spiritual beings behind them, demons, the Bible says, that want to enslave the Israelites and have already enslaved the other nations. And God says, stay away from them. Don't do it. And we somehow think that we've moved beyond this, but let me tell you, the God of mammon is alive and well in American culture. In fact, it may be, he may be the God of the system. I'm not sure because he does have a few rivals. No, possessions can't own you, but listen to me. You can willingly bind yourself to your possessions and your wealth, and in doing so, you can become enslaved to idols that animate those possessions. And so Jesus looks at this rich young man, and he realizes that's the state that he is in, and because he loves him, he lays him bare. He says, hey, I got one thing for you to do. Notice that this man has abundant possessions. He has abundant things that he has. He probably doesn't lack for anything. And Jesus says, you lack one thing, the ability to let all that go. And all of a sudden, he's shocked. He realizes that is the one thing he can't do. He cannot buy this faith in Jesus Christ. He has has all the power, all the authority, all the wealth, but he cannot let go of it. Now, I want you to hear me on this. It's important that we note this. To be trapped by the God of mammon does not mean that necessarily that manifests itself in greedy, dragonish like Shark Tank-like behavior, just because you and I are not like Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank does not mean that we don't have to struggle with this, okay? This young man is a great example of this. He is morally upright. He's falling down at the feet of Jesus, asking the right questions about eternal life. He's a good dude by all accounts, and yet he is enslaved to mammon. He walks away sorrowful because he knows, despite the fact that he longs for eternal life, he cannot give up this this one thing in order to get it. And why? It's because this one thing he really believes gives him a better chance at it. In short, materialism is a snare that stands in the way of truly following Jesus, and that's the message here. That's the message. So a couple of things. How should Christians handle money? Well, I have just three points, and then I want to tell you why we say some of the things we do here at Providence. Then I want to get into a little bit more of the passage about what Jesus says about the deceitfulness of riches. But first, how should Christians handle money? Number one is, you are blessed to be a blessing. This is what Genesis 12 tells us. Abraham, I'm going to bless you that you might be a blessing, and through you all the nations shall be blessed. So if we find ourselves, whether we're overflowing with means or whether we are lacking with means. Everything has been given by God as a gift from God in order to glorify God. And if we have excess, it's most assuredly not meant to be self-aggrandizing for our own glory, exaltation, or self-protectionism, but to be a blessing. Number two, many of us think that it's impossible to be wealthy and to honor God. That's because we're misinterpreting what Jesus says here. The Bible regularly says that it is possible. Here's Proverbs chapter three, verses nine through 10. Listen to what Solomon says. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. He would not tell, he would not bring the command to his son to honor the Lord with his wealth if it's impossible to do that. No, you can be a good and honorable wealthy person if and only if you choose to see yourself as a steward and not an owner and to recognize that those idols will tempt your heart and you must reject them. Which leads me to my third point, which is there is a greater responsibility placed on the wealthy to honor God with their wealth 
and withstand the inevitable temptations of wealth. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. This is at the end of a parable, okay, about talents. And he says, uh, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, here we are. I want to tell you, I know many of us are all over the spectrum. If we had a linear line, you know, where are we at financially? Everybody's in a bunch of different places. Here's what I'll say. Globally speaking, we would be considered the ones with much. All of us. The worst off amongst us. If you just put us on a global linear scale, we'd be way over here on with much. So we must see ourselves as such. And there's a greater responsibility placed there. And guess what? There's greater temptation placed there. Because it's like fodder for the enemy. And I'll, we'll show you, I'll show you why here in just a second in scripture. But every week we get up and say, hey, at Providence, we give regularly, cheerfully, and sacrificially to the local church, you know. And um, yeah, it's alliteration or, you know, something of that sort. I guess it's more verbal alliteration. It's, it's rhymes. And so sometimes we get common with that. It's like, oh, okay, it's just what we say. I, mean, I want to tell you why it's important that we say this. Why, was, why is giving regular essential for the Christian? Well, number one, because the fight is constant. Because there's always going to be a fight for your heart and what you treasure. And therefore, regular giving is the way that we show our treasure in Christ. So that whether we be killing it right now, everything's going really, really well, or not, Christ is still king. There's unique temptations on both ends, friends. When finances aren't going well, the temptation is to trust self Get, get alone, get Dave Ramsey and figure it out. I can't give right now because I got to really trim. Okay, that isn't trusting God. When, you, when it's really going great, your temptation is to say, I don't ever want this to change. And so I can't be giving now. Jesus said he who's faithful as little will be faithful as much. Some of us think when I finally get all that money, then I'll be a real giver. The Bible says, no, you won't. Because when the zeros start becoming more and more, you're gonna want, you're gonna like giving a lot less. Let me tell you, your mood won't change. Like, I'll really be in the mood for giving when I get, no, you won't. Because it's a heart issue. We say give cheerfully. Why? Because remember that idolatry, this spiritual battle that's going on for us, it's a fight for affection. It's a fight for joy. And so when we say we want to give cheerfully, what we're really saying is our joy is in Christ. We joyfully give and we reject the, the joy, this false pleasure, this fleeting pleasure that mammon offers. That's what we're saying. And then lastly, sacrificially, the fight's always a spiritual one. The Old Testament's filled with sacrifice because sacrifice and worship are always interconnected. And by giving sacrificially, we are saying we worship the one true God alone. Even if it's at great cost to us, it always will be a great benefit to us. It's a worship issue. Okay, now that's how Christians should view it. Now I wanna spend some time asking this question. Why is it important? Why is it important? Because a lot of people will say, well, you go to the church and then people talk about money and, you know, it's, it's always a, like a shell game. It's like you're always watching TBN, whether you're at the church or on the TV. And um, here, here's why Jesus speaks about money more than any other topic. I'm not sure if you knew that. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks about money more than he speaks about hell. Did you know that? More than he speaks about heaven. Did you know that? He speaks about heaven as one of his primary topics. Why does he do this? Because Money and power and wealth have a unique way of enslaving and ensnaring the human heart and keeping us from the one true God. Let's go through why that may be. Why do money and wealth deceive us uniquely? Let's read verses 23 through 27. 
And Jesus looked around at his disciples, and he said, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. I joked with the 9 a.m. This is like that moment where the pastor gets up, you know, during fundraising time and says, it's going to be really hard for all of you rich people to enter the kingdom. You might not make it. And the disciples are like, why is he doing this in the middle of the fundraising speech? You know, he's going to run everybody off. Now watch what Jesus does here. He doubles down. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when you read that, I've heard tons of commentaries on this, okay? And, you know, there's talk about, like, there's a camel, and there's a little, like, cave that was called the Eye of the Needle in Jerusalem, and they'd have to, like, shimmy. Cam- I don't know anything about that, okay? I'm just going to tell you Jesus saying, that's impossible. You can't shove a camel through the Eye of the Needle, right? That's, at face value, he's saying, that's how difficult it would be for a rich man to enter the kingdom. So why is Jesus saying that wealth is such a destructive force? Well, two things. Number one, there is an inherent false affirmation that can come from being wealthy. It looks something like this. I must be doing something right because I'm killing it at life. God must be pleased with me because look at how everything's working out. Now, here's what I want to say. Perhaps that has some merit. The Old Testament says that Jacob, for instance, was increasingly wealthy because God was pleased at times with his life. Okay, but it's not always the case. It's entirely possible, both biblically and experientially, you've seen it with your own eyes, for people to be wealthy through unjust gain. Ecclesiastes is a book that says Solomon mourned that most of the world was filled with people who were sitting up in princes' towers who were terrible. And he said, why is the world like this? Now, similarly, it's possible to be impoverished and not be under the judgment of God. Some people think it must be because God hates me. That's why I can never get a good job. Well, Job went from wealthy to not so wealthy in like an hour. And he was a righteous man. God even said to himself. So we need to have another paradigm. There are righteous, wealthy people and unrighteous, wealthy people. There are righteous, impoverished people and unrighteous, impoverished people. All of those categories exist. And here's how they look. A righteous, wealthy person trusts in the sovereignty of God and sees everything as God's great gift, not as his, and then uses that for his glory. An unrighteous, wealthy person craves for vainglory for himself. They look down on others for their lack of funds because they're not business savvy. They're not disciplined. They must not be smart. Look how bad they must do in their life. They didn't make good decisions. The unrighteous, wealthy person will do everything to keep and maintain the power that they perceive they themselves have gained by no help from anyone else. The righteous person impoverished also, like the righteous wealthy man, trusts in the sovereignty of God even when it doesn't bring bountiful harvests for him. Like Job said, naked I came into this world, naked I shall leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The righteous impoverished man says, I'll plant the seeds even if God doesn't bring the rain. God sovereignly decides what it is that he would give me. And then the, the righteous, impoverished man uses everything that he has for the glory of God and seeks to honor God through it. But listen to me, there are such a thing as the unrighteous, impoverished man. This man craves, just like his wealthy counterpart, the same things. If they were to write down their dreams, they might even look the same. If he circled things in catalogs he wanted, they might even look the same. He craves the same kind of affirmation, the same kind of vain glory. 
and yet he doesn't have the results. And so rather than looking down on the poor man, he looks up with the same bitter hatred and disdain for the wealthy man. He hates him for the same reasons because it represents what he is not. And so we have to have a new paradigm to look at money. Money, the Bible teaches us, is not the root of all evil. Did you know that's a misquote from the scriptures? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is amoral. Your car is not a moral agent. Your house is not a moral agent. The trinkets you have, your iPad, your phone, not moral agents. They can be utilized only through moral agents, human beings, and that means they can be leveraged for good or for evil. You can use the same car through drunk driving to commit a crime as you can to pick up someone on the side of the road who had a flat, a widow by herself. That same car can be used for the exact same, or totally different purposes, but it's the exact same car. Money is amoral, but people are moral agents. Meaning that we can't simply look at the status of someone wealthy or impoverished and therefore make moral judgments about them. No, it's possible to be all of the above. Now, the second reason why wealth is such a pernicious temptation is because we can make the mistake of believing that the fleeting pleasures of wealth is the same thing as the eternal pleasure of God. Let me say that again. We can make the mistake that the fleeting pleasures of wealth are the same as the eternal pleasure of God. We begin to crave more begin to afraid, be afraid of losing what we have. We begin to hoard and scheme. Like the old folklore of the old dragons, we start to build caves, fortresses to hide and maintain what we've gained. You guys know the dragons, they have a cave and they sleep on their gold like a miser and they're chained to it in some way. This is what we become internally. That's what these old folk tales were meant to teach us, that over time, you start to be so self-preserving that no one can come around because you're just going to ruin my house, you filthy kids. Don't come into my home group over here. I got this house, and all you guys do is kick holes in these walls. And you forget the whole purpose of the house is to be a blessing to those same crazy kids. I don't want to be coming over here because it's going to make things dirty. It's like, that's what's going to happen if we're actually going to use it for the glory of God. There's an old proverb that says, you can keep the stalls clean, but you must have no oxen. And it's by the strength of the ox that the fields get plowed. So you can have clean stalls, you just can't have people. You can have a clean church, you just can't have people in that church. You can have a clean house, you just can't be ministerially engaged at all with that house. You can have a clean car, you just can't have a family. Everybody, every parent knows this intuitively. It's like you can have a nice car, just don't have kids. You see, what happens is we lose sight of God who gave us everything, and we, mistake, we mistakenly start to feel ownership over things that we are merely called to steward over. Those are different words. Only God is an owner. You and I are stewards. Listen to me. God intends, the Lord Jesus Christ intends to return and settle accounts with us on how we stewarded what he's given That's what the Bible tells us. You don't own anything. You've never owned anything in your life. You're a steward over that which God has permitted you to have, and he is going to settle accounts on how we gave glory to what is his. 
And I don't just mean this with your car or with your bank account, with your savings account. I mean it with the spouse that sits next to you, the great gift that you have in that marriage, the children that you have. God gave them life and then he gave it to you. And the king comes back to settle accounts one day. And what happens in the heart of the unrighteous wealthy man or the unrighteous impoverished man is he starts thinking he's an owner of things. He starts thinking that I need to protect what's mine. And it reminds you of the garden. Money becomes your source for security, happiness, peace, desire. And in the end, what ends up happening in our hearts is we begin to long for the gifts that God has given just in so far as he'll stay out and leave us alone. We don't want the God of the gifts. We just want the gifts. Now, how prevalent is this issue? Well, I wish I had a lot more time, but the disciples, they don't listen to this and then go, we're good, it's no big deal. Their response is how we should respond. Who can be saved? Anybody else? Like if you really just see it for what it is, all of us can be tempted by being enslaved by this pursuit. Because if we know ourselves, we'll admit that there's all sorts of difficulties tied up. Like, like how about this one? All of us have bills. All of us have bills that are coming due. Some are past due right now. You're sweating thinking about it. And then you got kids and you got to feed those kids. And then some have different needs that you have. So you got to fulfill those needs. And then, you know, they start growing and wanting to eat more. And you're like, hey, why don't you try the off-brand of Frosted Flakes? You know, those are real things. And so how easy is it when you say get that raise or get that new job and then you start not having to worry about whether you can grab, you know, lip gloss at the counter at Target, you know, because you're not worried about if that's going to put you over your budget. You're like, I kind of like this. It's easy to start protecting that feeling. The disciples know this. You got to give them credit here. They recognize they are much more like the rich young ruler than they are like Jesus. And they say, who can be saved? Now, Have you ever wondered why it's so common for wealthy and powerful people across the historical spectrum to use their enormous wealth to search for immortality, eternal life? Like, if you ever read this, this is very common. And I say this because I want us to remember what this whole conversation is framed in. What did the rich young ruler ask Jesus when he first showed up? He said, tell me what I need to do to live forever. Eternal life was the key of the conversation. Ecclesiastes 3 says God has put eternity in man's heart. It's the desire of man's heart. Your heart is beating and it longs for eternity. It longs to be forever with God, forever in the garden again. Now, if you look in history, what most of the time when men get to the place of great wealth and great power, they start doing some pretty odd things. They start leveraging all of that to find things that we would consider fantastical. And I want to make the case that this is not just ancient lore, this is even modern day. But like, for instance, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest epic that we have written down, if you remember, what is Gilgamesh doing? Gilgamesh is a man of authority, he's a man of great wealth, he's apparently a giant figure. Whether that's a man of renown or literal physical stature doesn't matter. He's looking for the coral at the bottom of the sea that has eternal life if he could eat it. That's what he's looking for the whole time. Because it's a post-flood narrative and he doesn't want to die Chinese dynasties have these stories of how their, their emperors would try to look for the elixir of life. They wanted to find this, this drink that they'd heard of. One of the, the emperors in the, uh, in the Chinese dynasty he died because his prophets told him that he could drink this potion and it was the elixir of life. It, it was actually mercury. 
turned out bad for him, but that's what, that's what happened. In Greek mythology, they had the ambrosia. You guys remember this? The nectar of the gods. This is what Achilles was dipped in by his ankle, which is why his ankle was the thing that got shot, remember? He's dipped in the ambrosia, and then it said he's put through the fire. Now that should hearken you back to the Canaanite gods who put their children through the fire as an act of worship. The fountain of youth was always one of these things, even all the way up into modern explorations of the new world where they said things like, we found the fountain of youth in Florida, St. Augustine, Florida, you should come over here, and that's where you could drink of this well and never die. Listen to me, kings and queens would send explorers with great funding to find this. You may think I'm crazy. Historically, they would send full ships out and explorations to find this. Why? Because these wealthy men and women now have the means they want to live forever. You may be thinking that's done and gone, but here's some modern examples. Did you know, okay, you know what cryogenic science is? This is where they freeze people because they believe that they could unfreeze them later down the road when technology catches up and then they can give them the anti-aging potion so they could live forever. Now, you may think that is also the plot of Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. And I would say you are correct, which is why it's crazy that 3,000 people are currently cryogenically frozen. Did you know that? That is 3,000 people too many for me. That's insanity. It's not just that, though. Billionaire Jeff Bezos invested in Altos Labs. This is billions of dollars. It's a company with the mission of immortality through genetic reengineering of human cells to reverse the aging process. Millions of dollars. Okay. And then, of course, maybe the prominent one, the most prominent one, you guys have probably already seen this everywhere, but it's AI, transhumanism. It's the belief that the spirit of man does not exist, but consciousness of the mind is the true you. So your mind's consciousness can simply be uploaded to a cloud and then set aside. And once you can create this synthetic body that can do what your biological body cannot do, namely just be forever, then they'll upload your consciousness from the cloud into this synthetic body, and now it's you that can live forever. Also known as iRobot by Will Smith or the Terminator with Skynet, okay? Like every dystopian crazy thing that you've read or watched as in the 80s, um, is now apparently everybody's dream. Now, why has this happened? Well, all of these are si simply eventual outworkings of the human propensity to be enslaved by idols that came from the garden. It's the result of human rebellion. I want you to hear me. It is easy to look at guys like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates and say, look at how crazy and wicked and evil, but never kid yourself. Unrighteous, impoverished men would do the exact same thing that those men do if they had the means to do it. Are you hearing me? Apart from a regenerate heart and love for Jesus Christ, every man would do these things if they had the means just like humankind at Babel leveraged everything to make a name for themselves, to build a tower to the heavens so that God could never flood them again in defiance of God, friends, the human heart, apart from God, seeks to have all of the benefits of God's world, all of the gifts of God, all the pleasures of God without him. They want Eden with no cross, no Christ, no crown, no authority. And why is that true? Because that's what our first parents chose when they ate of the fruit. They believed the lie, you shall surely not die. 
And this is why it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It's not because money is inherently evil. Listen to me. It's because the human heart is evil from birth and must be regenerated. With increased wealth, apart from the grace of God, our sinful passions become inflamed and we will search out any necessary means to find a substitute for God. Money and power only encourage this pursuit because they give you the tools, better tools. It's like upgrading from a hand saw to a skill saw, from a skill saw to a table saw. And then when you're really super wealthy, you got lasers to do all your work, you know? That's what money is. But the human heart has the same job, and that job is producing new idols to create a utopia apart from God. But just like Babel, all of our utopic visions of life apart from God always end up with dystopic results. That's why all of the plans and plots and schemes of all the kings of the earth will end poorly if they reject the one true God. 15-minute cities will be 1984. It is inevitably so. Why? Because if you reject the God of the garden, you cannot have the garden itself. All right, I want to end with this. Why then does Jesus move into a third prediction of his death and resurrection? Well, I think there's a a number of reasons. Well, I want to say I think that there's one primary reason, and it's this. He says, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom. Who then shall be saved? Who can be saved? He says, don't worry. What is impossible with man is possible with God. He's saying the utopic visions of man where they utilize and leverage their wealth for their own utopic ends, but that leads to destruction, they cannot enter the kingdom on their own. In other words, money cannot buy you eternal life. Power cannot buy you eternal life. Guess what, rich young ruler? Moral rectitude and virtuousness can't buy you eternal life. Guess the only thing that can buy you eternal life? The precious blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins that he paid and you did not pay. And therefore, man cannot boast, but God gets the glory. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. That's why I'm here. Disciples, rich young ruler, the crowds. See, man cannot create eternal life, even if he's the most upright, the most wealthy, the most handsome, the most good looking, all of the best birth order. He could never pay or do or work in order to gain eternal life. But listen to me, but Christ, because of his precious blood, can take the most grotesque, evil, greedy, dragonish man and make him new again. So Jesus says, hey, I do impossible things. It's the only kind of work there is. The cross is mentioned here because in Christ and Christ alone, we get the offer of eternal life. And listen to me, and it's in Christ and Christ alone that we can deal with money, deal with wealth, not be the siren song of our culture that tells us you're going to be whole if you do this. You'll have full being if you do this. We can say we already have it. It's in Christ. You'll be whole if you buy these shoes. I already have Christ. You'll be whole if you wear this makeup. You'll be pretty if you wear this makeup. You'll be beautiful. You'll be desired. I'm already desired. I'm in Christ. I have died to myself. Paul says it like this. No, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. I'm not too concerned if people want to, you know, tag me in their posts on social media. I'm not photogenic and it doesn't hurt my feelings. I have Christ. And that's the offer that Jesus gives here. He offers himself. 
He offers himself not as a substitute, but as the real thing that these other substitutes are trying to lie to you about. The vacation that's going to really change your world, Jesus says, no, it won't, but I will. That one job that if I just got, that one promotion, no, that's not going to change your life, but Christ will. And he was so interested in giving himself over to you that he was willing to die. That's what the message is. He was willing to go to the cross. And so that's the invitation that we have this morning. My prayer is that we would see the darkness of the human heart, but only in relation to the great invitation that comes from Christ, that you are loved by him, pursued by him, desired by him, not by any merit of our own, but because of that is the God that he is. What a wonderful thing. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess to you now, we know, I know, the constant spiritual battle about finances and wealth and possessions, it is the air that we breathe. And so we ask now, would you refresh us, give us a breath of fresh air in knowing that we do not have to be chained or enslaved to the God of mammon, but that we can simply call out to you and be freed forever. Help us to receive that invitation. And as we take now of your supper and we rejoice in your broken body and shed blood, remind us that these are the links that you are willing to go in order to justify us, that we might have eternal life. Help us to receive it, Lord Jesus, with joy, rather than to try and earn it or to gain it but simply receive what you've given. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.